I'm going to dive, I don't normally do this, but we're going to dive straight in. I would like you to just cast your eyes down to verse 20. It's a shocking verse. God said to him, you fool. Literally says, he doesn't say you fool, he just says fool. Exclamation mark. Who's the fool there? And, and what has the fool done in order to be condemned by Jesus here in such... Uh, an abrupt way. And what are the consequences of being a fool in God's eyes? What about you and I? I guess that's the big question, isn't it? Are we fools? Now I want to be really clear from the start, given the subject of this parable. Jesus, it seems from this, he's not asking you for your money. And I, today, I'm not going to, you know, say, oh, look, off you go, give us lots of your... I'm not going to say anything like that. As you will know if you're regulars here, I speak about money in this church once every year. And you will know, if you're here as a guest, there is no collection, and there will never be a collection here at Christchurch Earlsfield. I, I principally do this because I don't want anyone to feel any excessive pressure to give of their, of their money to, to the church, especially if you're visiting us. You ought to feel welcome. You ought to feel that you can come here and, and the one thing that you need to grapple with and you need to think about and you need to engage your heart and your mind in is God through his word, the Bible. But in this series of parables that we've been looking at throughout Mark's Gospel, I think I wouldn't be doing you any favours and I'd be utterly remiss if I didn't... <laughs> include one parable about money because over 25% of all of the parables refer to or are specifically about money. Jesus is forever talking about money throughout the Gospels. And not again because he is asking the people for their money or trying to manipulate them and get them to give all their money to him. No, he's not asking that. Jesus speaks about money again and again because money is the great indicator of one's heart. Which is why Jesus concludes this section. I don't know if you need to turn over the page. Turn to chapter 12, verse 34. You'll see the end of this section in Luke's Gospel. And you'll see his concluding statement. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Charles Spurgeon, you'll probably recognise by now, I quite like Charles Spurgeon, I always read him, and 18th century, 17th century, 19th century preacher. Nod, if that's right, Nathan. Good. Mm. Is that right? I can't remember. 1830 to 90. Someone's nodding, so it must be right. Okay, he, when he was preaching on this section in Luke's Gospel, he wrote this beside it. One way you know that Jesus Christ is precious to you is that nothing else is. One way that you know Jesus Christ is precious to you is, nothing, is that nothing else is. I put that quote on my Facebook page this week as a bit of an experiment. Earlier, I think it was about Tuesday, I put it down there. And I do that quite regularly. I put little kind of uh, Bible verses or little kind of quotes from great Christian men and uh, you know, sometimes hymns verses on my, on my Facebook page just to encourage folks around. And, and lots of people usually sort of like, I like that. You know, I like. And they 
tick the like thing. Or they, they write a comment, don't they, Alida? And, and they, they write a comment about uh, various things that, um, you know, say, oh, I really appreciate that today. That's a really wonderful thing you said. It was really interesting, though. This quote from Spurgeon got one measly like. And I normally get, you know, tens. I'm not kind of saying that because I'm... <laughs> that sounded awful. No, I didn't mean that in any way like that. But I don't think it was the quality of the quote that people didn't like. I actually think it was the truth in the quote. And, and, and actually the, the truth in the quote that people actually don't like to talk about at all. That is, the money, the possessions, the treasure. That has become the one thing in our society, hasn't it, that is out of bounds in polite conversation. You can go to a dinner party, can't you? Or just around, you know, to the pub, whatever. You could speak about yeah, your travels, your holidays. You can speak about your boss at work or, you know, how, how your project's going or whatever it may be. You can talk about your relationships. People even now, it's very much a norm that you can speak about the intimate parts of your relationship, if you like. That has become more normal now. The one thing, the one thing that you can't speak about is your money or the other person's money. If you want a fast ejection from a dinner party and if you think dessert is looking pretty rank and you want to get out of there quick, you want to try this one on for size. So how much exactly was your last bonus? And how much of that did you give to charity? That would really make a fast exit for you, wouldn't it? I, once, I, I had the temptation in my mind, it was about a year ago, and I went around to a dinner party and I was so, so tempted to say this to someone. And it, it was basically, gosh, that car, was that 90 or 100,000 pounds? Did that stretch you at all? I was so wanting to say I didn't dare. Now I'm not suggesting you try that at all. I will think I would have thought you'd find yourself very isolated and without any friends if you carry on speaking like that at dinner parties. But it does expose, doesn't it, the privacy that we expect with our finances. And privacy is no bad thing. Don't hear me wrong on that. Trying to hide something, though, uh, that is... If, privacy is no bad thing unless you're trying to hide something that is not pleasing to God and is unhelpful to you. And money in our culture is private. And there is, and there must be a reason for that privacy. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, in the culture around us, and uh, many of you are kind of embroiled in that, many people like to masquerade as old money. You know what that means. They like to think of themselves as the kind of the modern, generous gentry of society. How lovely. We give away, we give away all this and, and so on. This area is full of folk like that. But... I have to say that many, if you look around, are as nouveau riche as the Burberry-wearing folk that they look down their noses at. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. There is a lot of treasure on show in this area, isn't there? And it is being stored up around us, and maybe that could be you right now. Or certainly what you aspire to. I found myself this week feeling ever more uncomfortable in myself, my own heart, my view of possessions. And I think Spurgeon is right. 
One way you know that Jesus Christ is precious to you is that nothing else is. So what prompts Jesus to this subject? Uh, let's just read verse 13 to 16 to remind us of how he got into this, um, this subject and, and the background to the, the story and the parable. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now I think there's a number of things going on in these verses, but it culminates in, doesn't it? Um, a harsh warning. And that's where we have in our first point there. A harsh warning. We've got this unnamed man, haven't we? We don't know who he is. The story comes and he approaches Jesus and he approaches initially with a request. Do you see the request? Verse 13. And the, t- the tone suggests it's not angry, it's not a provocative move by him at all. He simply wants help, doesn't he? And the situation is, the man wants help with regard to his inheritance. I mean, it needs to be divided, and as is often in the case of uh, inheritances. There's bad blood between the brothers, it would seem. One wants 50, one wants 60, one, we don't know what the, the amounts are. I love the way the man asks Jesus, though. Have you seen what he says to him? He doesn't say, help me, does he? Look what he says. He says, can you help my brother, please? He's the one that's in trouble. I don't want to admit that I'm at fault here at all. Help my brother, please. Now, this wasn't an unusual request. Uh, a rabbi ought to be able to help um, in all realms of the Mosaic law. That is the Old Testament law, which had in it kind of laws regarding inheritance and so on like that. There would have been an expectation. This huge crowd had gathered. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. You'll see this massive crowd had gathered. And they had come to hear Jesus teach a rabbi. They would have expected Jesus to have the wisdom to deal with this issue. Perhaps also this unnamed man had not only seen the wisdom of Jesus, but also the care of Jesus. You see that in chapter 12, verse 7. His care of all the things in creation is obvious there. But the request of this man in verse 13, surprisingly is met with this refusal in verse 14. Have a look at it. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Now, that's strange, isn't it? Because Jesus has repeatedly claimed throughout the Gospels, he is the judge. He's the judge of all. And he will one day be that judge. Is he contradicting himself here? Even in this chapter, though, the word arbiter that we've got in verse 14, interestingly, pops up also again in verse 51 of the chapter. Now, it's, it's translated differently in our translation. It's translated division there, or the, the divider. But it's the same word in the original. And Jesus says in that little section at the end of the chapter, 49 to 53, he's saying, I, I've come as an arbiter. I've come as a divider. Now, to, not to bring peace, but division. He's the arbiter, the one who will divide people. And Jesus was constantly dividing up people. I was amazed, actually, at just speaking to some uh, folks from a more liberal church this, this week. They, they, they do everything to ignore that truth about Jesus. They, it's, they're embarrassed that Jesus actually demands of people and divides people. Jesus asked people to choose him, to follow him, to turn to him, away from other people... He divides. 
Some follow, don't they, Jesus? And some ignore. Some choose Jesus. And some choose to mock Jesus. Some will shine brighter than the stars in the sky. And some will be blown away like chaff in the wind. That's what Jesus says. He divides. But in verse 14, Jesus says, Who appointed me a judge or a divider, literally, an arbiter between you? I think simply here, Jesus is saying, I have not been appointed for this kind of division. See, Jesus' refusal to deal with this man's issue here doesn't show a lack of compassion, but rather a committed priority. This inheritance, he's saying, Jesus is saying, this issue is not to do with me. This is an issue for Caesar or the law of the land to deal with. And it actually, Jesus, in fact, he's giving dignity to the man himself or mankind as a whole here. saying, you've got the intelligence, you've got the ability to, to chat with your brother and to deal with it yourselves. I don't have to be involved in this. He's giving dignity to the man as well. See, Jesus doesn't allow our felt needs to, to, if you like, to set his agenda here. And most obviously that is so. You, know, you will know the story very well, the healing of the paralytic, where the man gets loaded through the, um, the, the ceiling and he asks, you know, everyone's expecting his, his legs to be healed. And what does Jesus do? He sees beyond the felt needs of the man. And he goes to his real need. That is, his that he needs the forgiveness of his sins. And the shock here is that, that Jesus ignores the man's need, his felt, his perceived need, and his felt rights before Jesus. And Jesus is essentially saying to him, by refusing to meet that request, he's saying actually, do you see what he's saying implicitly? He's saying, it may be better for you to only take 30% of the inheritance cut. To suffer that injustice, it may be better for you to suffer that than actually to fall into the grip of Jealousy, or greed, or envy, or bitterness. See how he's saying that? Jesus shows his priority for this man. And actually for all of us here. It is not in accumulating possessions. It's actually, Jesus wants the possession of your life. The whole of your life. And Jesus is saying, I'm not here to get things for your life now necessarily i'm here to be the entirety of your life to consume your life to direct your life to be lord over your life but too often people just come to to jesus in those kind of transitional times in their lives very cultural and especially in england yeah, baptisms weddings funerals they kind of mark the moments of transition don't they and Jesus is kind of pulled out by many as uh, he becomes just a little appointment in the diary, a rite of passage. Or as someone, this man I was speaking to, this little guy this week, he just said, you evangelicals, you've got it right. Because we, speaking of liberals, he says, we treat Jesus as a trinket of religion. What a phrase that is. Just, I'll pull him out, put him on my mantelpiece and just admire him for a little bit, then I'll put him back. A trinket of religion. But Jesus is, if, if you like, he's refusing that insult here. He says he's not come to divide up an inheritance, that kind of common thing, or, or be used to make someone feel better about this moment in their life as they move forward. Jesus has come to give you an entirely new life. To set your life ablaze, if you like. 
To give you direction, joy and purpose. Now, but forever. And if you find yourself just wanting Jesus on your terms, then you will be blown away with all the accumulation that you've amassed for yourself in this life. You may consider that your treasure now, but it will be gone, as you will be. Here comes the harsh warning, verse 15. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, the man's heart was full of greed. Jesus can see right into it. He's, he's exposed, he's warned. It's sobering, isn't it? It cuts right to the heart of, I guess, many of us and many of our lives. The, the core of our lives being defined by the abundance of our possessions. Why do so many of us work so hard? Is it to serve and to glorify the Lord Jesus and to make him known in this place? Or is it just to increase the abundance of our possessions? Now, possessions aren't wrong. The Bible, again, is very, very clear on that. Possessions are, are, are important. They're good for two reasons, mainly, the Bible should. For security, but also provision. Proverbs says we should neither desire poverty nor riches. That is, we should neither be without possessions, poverty, or having too many possessions, overwhelmed by them, in riches. But this is a warning, isn't it? To get things in proportion. And literally, the, the Greek is really good. It's more shocking. I don't know why they didn't do this. It, it reads, essentially, you do not exist in your possessions. That is, eternally before God. You are nothing. You are lost. You do not exist in the eyes of God's love if you are defined by your possessions. Possessions, of course, can and they do bring a great deal of happiness. The Bible's obvious about that as well. But they cannot save us. And they cannot give us meaning and hope in this life. So there's present warning here, but there's also future warning too. Life now, if defined by what you can accumulate, will be empty. The fun will be momentary. If you turned up and gave me a Porsche today, I'd be happy. Very happy indeed. Extraordinarily happy. For a moment. And then I just want the better model. With more accessories. With a shinier paint job or bigger alloy wheel. I'm trying to make this up, but you know how it means. You know how it goes. There's a warning for the future too, because whatever you can accumulate now, you still need Jesus. And you can ask him to sort out all your common problems, like an inheritance. But you are more than that. And he offers more than that. Because he offers you an internal inheritance. Sadly, in the church, the confusion many make with their possessions and money is that they give it to Jesus before they give him themselves. And if that is you, that is you've come to church all your life and uh, you think that giving uh, money to the church is a right and a good thing and that will tip the balance with Jesus as he comes to you in judgment, well, Jesus says to you pretty warning, as a warning here, doesn't he? Watch out. 
Watch out. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. You're nothing if you're defined by them. So there's a request, it's a, a followed by a refusal, it leads to a very harsh warning. And that is then illustrated in this parable. Let's dive in at that, shall we? Verse 16 through to verse 19. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I shall do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones in there. I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, with a big pat on the back at this point, I guess, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. It's the good life, isn't it? Not in that sitcom of the 1980s. Do you find yourself reading that parable there? And just for a moment, you know the answer from verse 20, but for a moment you think, Hey, that sounds good. Doesn't it? That would sort out all the early morning commutes. That would, that would mean that you could put your snooze button on at nine rather than six or whatever it is you crazy people get up at. You know, it means you, you'd have no more struggles at the end of the month to match the, kind of, uh, you know, the balance of your books and your finances. You know, and if you find yourself you're a little bit, you know, sort of, you don't have too many friends. You mean you got lots of money then? You could buy friends, well, at least acquaintances, and that doesn't matter. That's enough. Sounds like a good life, doesn't it? Oh, we know from verse twenty, it's not. It's not a good life. So, what has happened to this man? Two things, two quick things. The reality is that money has blinded him spiritually. And that's what money does. It blinds people spiritually. See, this man in the parable has stored up everything. He saves everything. Of course, to save nothing, that would be foolish, wasn't it? But to save everything for yourself, equally foolish in the eyes of God. Because money blinds us to the things of God. Spiritual things, eternal things. And this man in this parable, he couldn't see beyond himself and his own needs and his own wants today. He, he couldn't see that the money and possessions he'd accumulated uh, for himself, it just has an end. It stops. He was blind to the value of investing in things that lasted, that were eternal. Why do we spend so much and save so much for something that will not last? Why do we not invest in things that do last? Like people. Or the word of God. And making it known. That's eternal work. Money blinds us spiritually because it captivates us in the moment, in the secular time. Right now. And it kind of just moulds our greedy desires for today. And this parable may may seem like a good life in your eyes. But if you view it that way, hear the warning. You are blind to the things of God. Secondly, money money blinds us to spiritual progress, to to progress spiritually. You see what the world says? The world says, store up, doesn't it? And what does Jesus say? He says, empty. Empty your barns. The world says, find yourself in the world. And what does Jesus say? He says, lose yourself in me. And what does the world say about power? It says, find power, exercise power. 
do everything he can to maintain power. And what does Jesus say about power? He says, real power is shown in humble service, in laying down your life for another. See, the Bible continually turns everything upside down in our world, in our culture. And money is so often the root cause for us to forget what progress really looks like before God, what growing as a Christian really looks like. The money we, we begin, with money we begin to think that, oh, if only I had that job, if I only had that bit much more, oh, sorry, more money, that big, the bigger house that we want, if only I had that money, then I could be, and we dream and we dream. And we think that money is the answer to everything. And you can even try and justify yourself through this parable in your own terms. I did it this week to my shame. Look at verse 19 and I say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. I'm thinking 20 years, 30 years, 40 years down the line when I retire. And you are too. And I'm thinking like this. Take life easy. And it looks like this. Oh, I'll help out at church. I'll come and do a little bit of extra work when I'm not in the office or whatever it may be. And I'll occasionally play a few rounds of golf. Maybe I'll go out for lunch with a few friends. I'll call that evangelism. But I'm not going to dare speak about Christ when I go and play golf. Flip back a few chapters. Luke 8, you'll know from Mark 8, I'm sure, as well. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, verse 23. Has money blinded you to the reality of growing as a Christian? If you are thinking that any moment of your life, whether it's now, 20 years' time when you get to director, or 30 years' time when you retire, oh, I don't know how old you are. If you are thinking outside of the categories of humbling yourself, sacrificing your, um, everything, laying down your life, sacrificial giving, if you're thinking outside of those categories, then money has blinded you to growing as a Christian, of spiritual progress that God longs for in your life. The baby boomer generation that is now reaching its retirement, my parents and I'm sure some of yours, I guess in time they will have a lot to answer for, both in the terms of the world and in terms of the church. They have seriously overspent. They have raised expectations for material goods to an unrealistic level. We will never live as our parents did. Their formative years were, of course, the swing 60s with the, the peace and love in the early 70s. How ironic it is then that they, yes, they've been the most wealthy generation that have ever lived in this world, but as everyone shows, they've also been the most discontent generation that this world has ever known. I mention this just to say that even in the church, there are very few good and positive examples of people who have not stored up. Who think that so many people that think that they can just pick and choose about how they progress spiritually, how that they grow in their godliness, they may justify their spending through other involvement in church. And you know what? I've done Bible studies for 20 years. And, and I've led Sunday school for 28 years. But when it comes to money, I choose how I spend that. I'll be rich toward God in the way that I want. Not the way that God wants. You will rarely hear, as I did this week, of a, an old faithful friend who said he's just been retired from the NHS after serving for goodness knows how many years, but he's carrying on in private practice. And he said, 
to my father. I'm going to work till I'm 70 and every penny I earn from now on will be to support the church. Every penny. We don't hear that often, do we? See, the good life is not as it seems. And money blinds us to the true good life. That is of serving Christ, of laying down our lives, giving ourselves up for him. So the parable ends and Jesus finishes speaking to his disciples. And there comes a sad rebuke. Sad rebuke, last little point to finish. In those last couple of verses, it's sad simply because you know that it's true for so many of your friends. Look at verse 20, can you, with me? God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. God said, you're a fool. Why? Four things, very quickly. I'm not sure they're on your sheets. They're not. I had them on the projector, but it's not working. First thing, a man had a, the man has a false estimate of time, doesn't he? You see, he had laid up things for many years. Look at that in verse 19, for many years. But in verse 20, God took his life from him the next day. He had a false estimate of time. He didn't know when it was going to end, and he made a false estimate. Secondly, he had a false estimate of purpose. That is, he gathered up his wealth and his possessions to take life easy. That was the purpose of them. But he was not rich toward God. That is, he spent his money and his life on completely the wrong things. He had a false estimate of control, thirdly. That is, he said to himself, I have, in verse 19, I have plenty of things, he says. But God says in verse 20, and he makes it clear, you're not going to take them with you when you die. He's not in control. Fourthly, he has a false estimate of value. He had so much, but the one thing that God required, the one thing that he's not willing to relinquish, was his heart, his life. And the rule over his life. Let me conclude. I suppose I've got to ask this. Are you a fool before God? Has money blinded you? This is so hard, isn't it? So hard. Because it is so different to the world around us. We don't want to be called a fool. And and hear that rebuke of verse 20 and 21, do we? We don't want that if we're Christians and saved by Christ. But at the same time, we struggle so much to stand out and, and use the money we earn in ways that are different to those around us. It's hard enough to be a Christian anyway in this secular society. You know, standing out in our relationships and our decision making. Never mind our money. Is that a step too far? It feels like it. Well, look at Jesus. Because Jesus was the ultimate fool. The ultimate fool as the world is concerned. As Paul writes to the Corinthian church, you'll know it, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, Jesus won through losing. Jesus was filled with glory by emptying himself of all glory. Is he not the proof we all need? He was the ultimate fool as the world is concerned, but he was vindicated and now sits at his right hand of his father. He's shown us the way to live and made possible the way to live for him. Jesus before God was not a fool. In fact, in a sense, he's the only sane one. 
Every religion in the world, uh, all the worldviews that you can think about, they all say, don't they, you need to store up things so that you can go to God and say, look at me, I've got everything you need. And God will say, of course you have, come in, we love you, great, oh, everything's fine. But Jesus shows you here, if you go to God and you say, look, I'm full, he'll say, you're empty. And if you go to God and say you're completely empty, he'll say, I will fill you with my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Money blinds us to that reality. And it makes us feel utterly self-reliant before God. So do we need to give all of our money away? Maybe. But maybe not. The man in this parable was condemned for not being rich towards God. He was a fool. And he was blinded by his possessions and his wealth. It's not an inevitability, but he was. Therefore, we need to be sane, not a fool, which means being rich toward God. And you will only be able to do that when you realise how wealthy you are before God. Because Jesus Christ has given up everything that he deserved, losing everything so we might gain everything and be rich beyond our wildest dreams in him. I don't know if you know that, but you are infinitely rich infinitely wealthy in Christ if you've trusted him with your life and your death and how you use your money therefore will be one amazing indicator for how much you know you are wealthy in Christ we haven't got time to look at it but if you do get a moment this week just read through the early chapters of the book of Acts and you will see again instance after instance where people were radically generous with their wealth. They realised that they were wealthy in Christ and they gave in extraordinary ways. And it demonstrated to those around them of the wealth that they knew in Christ. And the sacrificial, uh, you know, the sacrifice that God had made in his son, it was made apparent by their giving. Christ will not be known in this area until this area sees our generosity and our sacrifice. The early church gave radically and could say that they gave God everything. But if until we put our wealth on the line, until we're willing to be sacrificial and actually different to the world around us, visibly different to the world around us, we cannot claim to have ever given God everything. Spurgeon said, one way you know that Christ is precious to you is that nothing else is. Are you a fool? Do you know what? I hope you are in the eyes of the world. But perfectly sane in the eyes of God. As you're rich towards God. Enjoying your infinite wealth in Christ. Let's pray.